Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. I greet you this morning, back from a trip to our dear Jacob and Carol and brothers and sisters in Christ all over northern Uganda. And as Jeff warmly shared with you, there is a lot of affection back there for us as we have a lot of affection for them. It was a very sweet and profitable trip that we look forward to sharing details about with you on uh, October the 14th, next Sunday night, as the team will present to you what we did on behalf of Jesus Christ and on behalf of our church. As you know, we are starting a brief series in the book of Titus, so I invite you to turn there to Titus chapter 1. Titus is right after the two letters to Timothy and right before Philemon and the book of Hebrews in your New Testaments. Paul wrote 13 letters. In our New Testament, God had him to write 13 of these letters. Nine letters are to seven churches. Four letters are to individuals. And three of those individual letters uh, are to two men. Titus got two letters from Paul. uh, Timothy got two letters from Paul. And Titus got the letter that we are going to look at for the next four weeks from Paul. Titus is a very timely word for Rocky Point Baptist Church. It's from the pen of Paul, but we need to remember it's under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit that he wrote. And the Holy Spirit carried him along, phrase by phrase, thought by thought, point by point, with a strategic purpose behind these words for Titus and the churches that he would help to establish in Crete, as well as churches even to this day. For these letters are timeless, and they're not bound to a culture either. When choosing a book to preach through, we consider who we are as a church and where we are as a church. We submit ourselves to the Word of God. We don't just go off on a whim and preach through texts, but we say what would be most beneficial for us in this season of life as a church. This is how we grow as a church and as believers and as individuals. This is how we endure In this Christian life that we live waiting for Christ's return. This is how we keep God's will at the front and at the center of all that we do. So this morning we begin a four week series through the pastoral epistle to Titus, a man on the island of Crete. And I want to urge you to devote yourselves to understand and to apply these words very specifically this month as we work through this book. Especially, I ask you to devote yourselves to today and to the final point of application in this morning's sermon that will be from Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Turn there with me and let's read the text. Paul writes, guided by the Holy Spirit, this. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in His Word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, So that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. This is God's word through Paul to Titus to us today. And may we benefit from the reading of it and now the preaching of it this morning. I want to show you Paul's purposes in these this introduction, these verses of introduction. First of all, we're going to look at Paul, the author, and we'll understand what Paul thinks of himself and how Paul establishes himself as we understand his identification as the author of this letter. Second, we're going to look at what Paul thinks about God, the sovereign God who authored him to author this letter. And then finally, we're going to look at Titus, Paul's protege, and what this letter is to communicate to Titus so that he can be equipped to serve God at the instruction of of Paul. So let's begin first by looking at this man, Paul, who wrote this gracious letter. Paul begins his letter by identifying himself 
And I want you to pay real close attention to how he says who he is. His identity is not really found in self. His identity is found in one outside of himself. Paul establishes, first of all, his authority. And in establishing the authority that he writes under, we see something about who Paul is. He says, Paul, a servant of God. He is a servant of God. This is who the author of this letter is. Literally, he is a slave of God. He is bonded by God, the Father. And his mission, his ministry, his existence is attributable to God. God is the master. Paul is the servant, the slave. And so Paul would have Titus and us to know that he does not define his mission. God does. And he fulfills it as a servant of the master. He also says that he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. Servant of God. Apostle of Jesus Christ. This word apostle literally translated is messenger. Messenger. Paul identifies himself as a slave and a messenger. Paul does not determine his message. The one who sent him, Jesus Christ, determines that. And so he is a messenger of Jesus Christ. And I think we would agree as we will see later that he's also a slave to this Jesus Christ, this God. So Paul writes with authority that has been delegated to him by God. He has a message that has been given to him by Jesus Christ. God the Father and God the Son. He is surrendered to them. We also see something about Paul's purpose. Paul shows us in these verses the purpose for his ministry. The purpose behind his message. And there's four that I'll look at quickly with you. First of all, he says, after Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Look at this. He says, for the sake of. There's your purpose clause. For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life. There's four things there that Paul is serving God in, in his messaging on behalf of Jesus Christ for. The first is for the sake of the faith of God's elect. So Paul's existence, servant of God, messenger of Christ, still doesn't have any self in it. His purpose is for others. It's for these churches. It's for the elect, the elect of God. Faith in Christ is the beginning of the Christian life. And this is the faith of God's elect that he serves the purpose of. It is God who initiates salvation. It's God who initiates faith. It's God who elects his people, establishes his churches and builds them up and keeps them and sustains them and protects them. The one that Paul is a messenger on behalf of said this to the disciples and to us in John fifteen sixteen. Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. This is election. God has elected the church, the believers into the faith and the salvation and the eternal life in which they hope. God's election is activated by repentance. We do have to repent when God elects us. We are elected through repentance. Paul says this to Timothy. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. And God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. How is repentance achieved? It is granted by God. And how does God grant repentance? He did not choose you. Or you did not choose him. He chose you. And when he chose you, he granted you a heart of repentance that you might receive his election into salvation. You know, we prayed this verse all over our time in Uganda. There are brothers from Sudan that are wanting to head north to take the gospel to their Islamic families and communities. 
And we had an opportunity to meet with them. And at one point, we even prayed this verse. God, would you grant repentance to the people of North Sudan when they hear the message of these four brothers so that they might have eternal life according to the knowledge of the truth that they're going to proclaim? We prayed this as we went into Yumbi and preached on top of a land cruiser to an Islamic, basically, crowd. Would you grant them repentance? Would you reveal amongst these people whom you have elected to eternal life? And would it be all of them, Lord? And would you grant them this today as a result of the truth that we're going to proclaim? So we need to understand that God elects people into salvation and God's election is activated by repentance of those people. That's how it's activated. And so Paul's mission and message served God's purpose in establishing and building churches in Thessalonica, Corinth, Galatia, and on and on in all of the places that Paul planted churches. Secondly, a purpose of Paul is to, for the sake of their knowledge of the truth. So first of all, for the sake of God's elect. Second of all, for the sake of their knowledge of the truth. This, this election does require there to be knowledge. Authentic faith comes from a, a knowledge of the truth. And I really like how Paul, or rather Peter, establishes the truth to a Jewish crowd on the day of Pentecost back in Acts chapter 2. I want you to listen to the message of truth and the knowledge moment that happens in the audience that Peter is speaking to. Peter says to this crowd, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. That is the most important truth that we must be knowledgeable of. As human beings. He said, goes on. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain. That God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. What was their response? To this proclamation of the truth. What was their response? If you're here this morning as a Christian. I think you can identify with this response. Now when they heard this. They were cut to the heart. God's granting repentance right here. Cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles. Brothers. What shall we do? And Peter said to them. Repent and believe. Repent and be baptized every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ. For the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you. And for your children. And for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God. Calls to himself. Elects. And he elects through repentance. It's activated through repentance. So we must have a devotion and a desire to know the truth rightly so that salvation comes through our repentance and our acknowledgement that God has chosen us. And we rejoice in this truth. We must also have a devotion and a desire to know Christ progressively until we die or He comes again. We don't gain knowledge and keep it right there. Because there is knowledge to be had about Jesus Christ as we grow in our faith in Him. He is unsearchable. He is unfathomable. We cannot comprehend His fullness. But we should be striving. And then there will be a day that we will fully have a knowledge of the truth of Jesus Christ. When He comes again. And so right knowledge of truth saves us and keeps us in the faith of God and keeps us in the election that he has granted to us through this repentance. Thirdly, it's for the sake of their godliness, Paul says. We cannot stop with just knowledge of God and Jesus Christ. In faith, we must apply our knowledge to our daily lives. 
It has to go from head to heart, and then it's got to go from heart through the mouth and through the hands and the feet. We have to be doers of the word. And so Paul exists. His ministry is based upon the purpose of, for the sake of their godliness. And godliness is doing and acting and behaving with the knowledge of the truth that has saved them. Right knowledge leads to right practice. And our practices matter, dear people. They matter. Our works matter. They don't save us, but they reveal that we are elect. And they reveal that we have repented. Hebrews 10.26 warns us, If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving a knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. So this knowledge has to result in us acting rightly. And Paul exists for the sake of the godliness of these people and the knowledge of these people. And the fact that they are God's elect. Number four. Paul's ministry is built upon the sake of. Or is delivered for the sake of. Their hope. Of eternal life. Faith. Derived from right knowledge. Resulting in right practice. Leads us to a. Genuine. bona fide hope. For eternal life. Which is our greatest need. The end of all faith, the end of all knowledge, the end of all practice and works is eternal life, godliness and eternal life. It is the hope of the Christian life. This is what we look forward to. This is why we profess and why we remain in the faith. Paul urged Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. You hear that? Your, what you do, keep a close watch on yourself, your practice, your godliness, and on your teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourselves and your hearers. So when we pay a cl close attention to what we believe and what we do, eternal life is waiting for us. Salvation is waiting for us at the end of that. So real quick here, by way of application, this sequence... That Paul's ministry exists for must be found in us as individuals as well as us as a church. We need to follow the progression that we see here in Paul's writing. We preach the gospel so that people can be saved. So that the elect can become elect through repentance. We proclaim it. God elects them through that. We teach and disciple the people of God so that they may know him progressively and authentically. And we preach and teach so that the knowledge penetrates the heart, which changes the actions and the words. And we urge the people of Christ not only to be hearers of the word, but doers. This word comes out of us in good works that give glory to God and benefit the people. And we, if we get these three things correct... Faith, knowledge of the truth, and godliness, practice. If we get those three right, eternal life awaits. Again, Paul to Timothy, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Hope in eternal life. Through practicing and training ourselves to be godly. And we do that with a right knowledge. And we only get there because God through repentance has elected us to be his church. There's a third thing that we see, and we're still under point number one in understanding who Paul is. We see that Paul has not only identified who his authority is, he has not only identified what his purposes are, but he's also identified his method for fulfilling this ministry and being fulfilling the identity that God has given him. His method is found in verse 3. Through the preaching... With which I have been entrusted by the command of God the Savior. 
Paul's method is very clear. God gave Paul four purposes for ministry, but he gave him only one method by which to fulfill it. Preaching. The Word of God the Savior. Preaching. Again, in Uganda, we stood on a land cruiser and we preached the gospel of Christ. We went down the streets of Kula Kalinga before the land cruiser sermons. Shared the gospel store to store, if you will, in a marketplace with all ages. Elisa and Tony sat with women in a church on a Wednesday morning and afternoon and they preached. Preaching is proclaiming the truth of Jesus Christ. This is preaching, that was preaching. These dear ladies preached and washed some ladies with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those two ladies, Sterling and Scott, went door to door in the village nearby RAU's property and preached the gospel, praying that God would grant repentance. And right now we have no idea if that was done. So it's preaching, that's the method. Proclaiming the gospel, evangelizing, telling the truth about Jesus Christ. That's the only thing Paul did. He didn't meet humanitarian needs, important as they are. He had one task to do with this by. His method was preaching. That's what we do every morning right here, Sunday morning when we gather with this pulpit and a man standing in it. Again, Paul to Timothy, I think this has got to be applied here. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. That's a word, yes, to Timothy, but that's a word to you and to me as well. Fulfill your ministry as one of God's elect. You didn't choose him, he chose you, and he chose you and gives you authority to speak on behalf of him so long as you speak the truth of Jesus Christ as we get in Scripture. Fulfill your ministry. Do the work of an evangelist. Here, next summer in Uganda, fulfill your ministry. So we see that the church is God's elect. There's nothing here where Paul would hint that the church is his. And he's not telling Titus, the church is yours, Titus. This is God's church. Paul is a servant of God towards God's elect. Paul is a messenger of Jesus Christ towards his elect. And Paul is commanded by God our Savior to preach in his service, his message to his people. Let's turn now to the second point this morning. Paul wants us to understand clearly God the Sovereign. We just saw Paul the author. Now let's look at God the Sovereign. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. There's sovereignty right there. For the sake of the faith of God's elect. There's sovereignty right there. And the knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in in hope of eternal life. Which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And at the proper time manifested in His word through the preaching. With which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Sovereignty all through that. Intentionality on the part of God over a long span of time, by the way. And just note for a moment God the Savior. That term Savior is used six times in the letter of Titus. Three times it's God the Savior, three times it's Jesus Christ the Savior. Interchangeably, deity of Jesus Christ. We have two persons of the Trinity right here lifting Christ high. And making sure we understand that He is God with us. We understand from what Paul has written here that God is a God of promises. Spoken, written, 
promises. And oh, is this not interesting? When did God promise? According to Paul, He promised before the ages began. That's sovereignty. That's eternal existence. Other places, Peter and John say the phrase, before the foundation of the world, God made promises. In the Old Testament, God said over and over again, I promise. He said it through Malachi. He said it through Ezekiel, Daniel, Jeremiah, and Isaiah, and David, and Moses, and Abraham. God, through all of these men, said over and over again, I promise, I promise, I promise. God even promised to a serpent in Genesis 3.15. He said, I promise there will be an offspring of the woman that will crush your head. I promise. But Baal takes us even before that. And he says he promised before the ages began. This is a big sovereign God that Paul is a servant of and a messenger for. Paul shows us also that God has an inability. Now, that's a strange thing to say when we're talking about a sovereign God to say he's got an inability, but he does. God is unable to lie. (laughs) That's good news. We want a disability there in God, don't we? He's unable to lie because he is unable towards evil. He is unable to sin. He's unable to do wrong. It's counter to his whole nature and existence that is eternal and without beginning. The writer of Hebrews tells us that when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. And that hope is eternal life. And we're to be strongly encouraged because God has made promises and it is impossible for him to lie and not fulfill those promises. That's good news. That's worth preaching. So God is a God of promises. He has an inability to lie against those promises. And so we see that God said yes to all of his promises. And Paul tells us in this verse that he did it at the proper time. He's sovereign over when. He'll say yes to the promises that he made all the way back to before the ages began. Paul is submitted to a sovereign God. I love the scenes that we see in Scripture of the proper time when God made his promises yes. We could look at a lot of places. I really like going Mark 1, 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, John the Baptist was arrested. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. So there's your preaching. One method. And saying, quote, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So there are elect there. They become elect through repenting and believing in the gospel. And Jesus Christ says, the time has fulfilled. It is the proper time for the sovereign God to say yes to all of his promises. So before the ages began, God promised. In the Old Testament, God said, I promise. In the New Testament, God said yes to all of his promises. Jesus Christ is the promise of God before the ages began. Jesus Christ is the promise of God throughout all the Old Testament scriptures. And Jesus Christ is the New Testament fulfillment of all the promises of God. From that point forward, when he stepped on the ground after John the Baptist was arrested... Till eternity future. 
Paul writes that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, was not yes and no, but in Him it is always yes, for all the promises of God find their yes in Him. Period. And that's Paul's message. And he delivers that message only through preaching. So Jesus Christ, God the Son, is the center of everything. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the center of God's promises. He's the center of God's fulfillment of God's promises. And He's the center of God's election. And we need to make sure that we center our lives on Him. Through repentance. And belief. And a knowledge of the truth. And practicing godliness. And hoping in eternal life. That will be yes. In the end. Because God's promised it. So let's now look at Titus the protege. The recipient of this letter. Verse 4. To Titus. My true child in a common faith. Grace and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Who is this Titus? And what is it about this Crete that drives Paul to write? Well, Titus... It seems, and Paul have a very unique relationship. It's a father-son relationship because Paul says to Titus, my true child. It's not biological, it's better than that. It's spiritual. Paul obviously was a spiritual father to Titus. And he loves Titus, he calls him my true child. And it's a childhood that will exist for a relationship that will exist for eternity. He, he goes on to say, you're my true child in a common faith. So their DNA, spiritual DNA, is common. It's Christ. Crucified, buried, and resurrected. Coming again one day. That's their common faith. They have a common hope in eternal life. This is really all we know about Titus. We don't get a lot of biographical facts about him in the scriptures. What is Paul doing in calling Titus to this title of true child in a common faith? And what is Paul doing in establishing his authority from which he speaks and writes and preaches? Well, I believe Paul is establishing Titus's authority as well. God delegated authority to Paul, and Paul in this letter is delegating authority to Titus because Titus has got some work to do in the churches of Crete. And so he is establishing his authority. This is a plan of succession of authority. And I believe that this letter to Titus is meant to be read publicly as he goes to the churches. There's evidence of that at the end of the letter. When Paul turns into a plural pronoun, you... He's speaking to a crowd of people. This letter likely was to be read publicly as Titus went from church to church, town to town. So that they could hear God's delegated authority to Paul and Paul's delegated authority to Titus. Because Titus had some work to do in these churches. He's stationed in Crete. It's evident that Paul was in Crete at one time and went town to town planting churches. Titus was with him, no doubt, because he says, this is why I left you in Crete. Crete is a large island in the Mediterranean Sea. It's got a lot of cities on it. It's real narrow and real long. And there are many churches, perhaps planted by Paul and his team. And Titus is left behind because the churches there are in jeopardy. They're in jeopardy of being infiltrated by twisted cultural teachings and norms. There's a mix of Jewish norms and pagan norms that are synchronized into something that is not Christianity. And yet it's going under the banner of Christianity. And Paul has left Titus behind so that Titus can put into order what remained in these churches. 
And Paul has given Titus two charges. That that I just said, put into order what remained, but also to appoint elders in each city. So there's a general charge to put into order, and there's a specific charge to appoint elders. Let's look at this phrase, put what remained into order. What did this involve? The contents of the rest of the letter of Titus, to Titus would tell us what this involved to some degree. It's not a comprehensive detail, but I think we can get a very clear sense of what was needed in these churches. There were two realms of error. There was theological error, wrong belief, wrong knowledge. There was not a knowledge of the uh, perfect truth. There's also moral error in these churches, in these communities. Theologically speaking, we see some errors. We see evidence of this. Look down with me in chapter 1 of Titus, verse 10. Theologically speaking, there were many who were insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers. It's theological error right there. And read on in 10 and 11, there was prevalent legalism practiced by this group called the Circumcision Party. That's a reference to Jewish legalists that found salvation based on works, which is not true. There were those in verse 14 who adhered to Jewish myths and the commands of people. And that's not the knowledge of the truth that Paul was sent to proclaim on behalf of Christ. Jewish myths and commands of people will not save. And there are those who practiced foolish controversies. Titus 3.9. Foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. Theological error was running rampant on the island of Crete in the cities and in the churches. And Paul says in Titus 2.1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Got to get them led to the right knowledge of the right truth. You do this, Titus. That's why I'm writing you. Morally speaking, we see errors as well. Chapter 1, verse 12. Paul says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Boy, that's tough language. But he's saying their works are horrible. They're evil beasts in what they do. In verse 16, he says, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. See the wrong practice, the moral error that they're living in. And in verse 16, they are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. They're immoral. And guess what? They're immoral because their doctrine is wrong. Their theology is wrong. The truth that they profess to know is not the truth. It's twisted. It's mythological. It's the commands of man and not the commands of God who sent me and authorized me. So Paul exhorts Titus to put theology and practice into order in the churches of Crete. That's his task. And it's a big one. It's a heavy task. It would also be right to understand that the churches needed direction on how to function. These are fledgling churches, church plants. They need basic instruction on how to do things such as ordering worship services, practicing the ordinances. I'm I'm not seeing that in the scripture, but that's what churches do when they are in order. They do these things rightly and biblically. They manage finances well. They, They disciple and have ministries that are established to function faithfully for Christ For the benefit of people. They needed to be put into order. Because either they were brand new and young. Or. They were being infiltrated by. A corrupt culture. Or both of those truths. And so the key for Paul in writing to Titus is. That right doctrine produces right practice. Get the doctrine right Titus. So that the practice will follow. Right theology produces right morals not the other way around and they were having a problem with that as does our culture today right morals we think get us right doctrine and it doesn't work that direction so that's the general charge to put into order what remained and then there's a specific charge appoint elders in every town 
And we will address that next Sunday. Right here at 10.15 or so. As we practice what Paul urged Titus to do. So I want to make an application here that I need you to lean in on this one. I need you to look at this now with me and understand clearly some application that applies to us today. Verse 5, Paul says to Titus, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. Very clear. So that you could establish order in these churches in Crete. This is the same purpose that I sense God brought me to contribute to the ministry of Rocky Point Baptist Church these past six years. I identify with this. We should identify with this. I'm one of several whom God has brought here to put into order what remained after a very trying and tumultuous season. I was brought here to lead in the task of bringing about healing, change, and revitalization. We have implemented many changes, and at every turn, we have sought to do so biblically according to the knowledge of the truth. We have established strong biblical order throughout our church, striving to be gospel-centered, Christ-centered in all realms of ministry, membership, discipleship of all ages, eldership, missions, music, finances, staffing, a preschool, Rocky Point We School. In all of these areas, we have strived to be gospel-centered and to put order there. Each of these areas needed to be put into order to one degree or another. Some much, some little changes. But all of them relied on a gospel-centered pulpit. The method God gave Paul, preaching, is the method that we've used. It's the method we have deployed here. And nothing steers a church with more impact than a biblically pure and faithful pulpit. And we endeavored to get this right from the onset, and it must be kept right ongoing. Non-negotiable. I want you to look with me at Titus chapter 3, verse 12. We'll get here in a few weeks, but Paul is giving final instruction here and closing his letter to Titus. And he says, when I send Artemis, Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis. So at the end of this letter, Paul summons Titus to leave Crete and come to him in Nicopolis. It seems that God, through Paul, had an appointed time for Titus to serve the churches in Crete. Once the primary mission was accomplished, Titus was to leave Crete and come to Paul for his next mission, whatever that might be. And we don't know what that was. We see such departures throughout Scripture. God assigns people to specific tasks and ministries for his plan and his pleasure. But they are often pulled away after a season of assignment and the fulfillment of his purposes. Much like Titus, lean in here, much like Titus, the time has come for me to leave my post at Rocky Point Baptist Church. Over the course of many months, much prayer and diverse and objective counsel. I have been led to the conclusion that God's purposes for bringing me to Rocky Point Baptist Church some six years ago have been fulfilled. Having concluded this, I want to share with you my intent this morning to resign my position as senior pastor on October the 28th, later this month. Please know that I have not arrived at a decision like this without a thorough review of where we are as a church and where Rocky Point Baptist Church needs to go in the immediate future. I am certain that I was to come and serve in the role God appointed for the time God ordained. 
Six years ago, Rocky Point had many unique needs and faced many serious challenges. Someone was to come and serve and lead the church to health and faithfulness. And I believe that I was uniquely fashioned to be one of several such people whom God provided for our church. It's been a season of service that has been at times extremely intense for a multitude of reasons. There were moments of great challenge and great opportunity that called for me to entrench myself and remain resolute and lead in the position that I occupied. Through it all, these six years have included numerous congregational developments and leadership improvements that have been a joy to participate in and experience with you all. Why would you ask, am I leaving? This decision is built upon the culmination of two realities. First, I have been approached with an opportunity to return to Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, to serve in a position where I will support and contribute to the development of future pastors, missionaries, and the advancement of the kingdom of Christ. Many of you know how strategic Southern Seminary is in my life and ministry. It was there that I received my theological training that has contributed to my ability to serve at Rocky Point these past six years. It was also there that I served as an employee and was introduced to the depth and the breadth of Southern's impact on the kingdom of Christ and the gospel being spread. Through these experiences, I have established a love and an appreciation for the institution and its contribution to spreading the gospel and building strong local churches throughout the world. As we have considered my giftings and Southern's needs and my status here at Rocky Point, Jennifer and I, along with Braden and Carabeth, believe that the Lord would have us to return to Southern Seminary at this time and have me serve Christ in this new capacity. That's a first reason there's a second that I would share with you. I would ask you to understand that these past six years have been very fruitful from my perspective. But personally speaking, there has been a strong cost of fatigue and weariness that has built up over the years. And over the course of time, I believe I have been stretched to the end of what I can offer our church in my position. As I look at our status as a church, we are in a strong position, free from controversy, and unified in our pursuit of Christ. And I could not fathom leaving the church under any other circumstances. It may seem odd to leave in peacetime, but I believe that the best of my gifts and abilities were deployed in the rigorous work of revitalizing our church and leading her to health. And by the grace of God, we are in such a state. Yet we must always be reforming until Christ comes again. We learned that in Nehemiah chapter 13, didn't we? As I reviewed the last six years and the timing of my departure, I am confident that this is the right moment for Rocky Point as well as for me and my family. I believe God brought me here to lead me lead through this season of church revitalization, but he has another man to occupy my post and to contribute to the leadership of the church through the next phase of service to Christ. Namely, in growing into a deeper spiritual maturity. And if God wills, if God wills, growing numerically through reaching the lost in the surrounding communities. What does this mean for the church? This is a conversation that began with the elders on August the 12th. As we progressed through the conversation and drew final conclusions, strategies began to develop. There has been extensive planning for short-term and long-term measures to implement in steering the church through this transition. Much of this will be presented to you this evening in a specially called family meeting to be held in the chapel. Please come tonight, listen to me, please come tonight to hear what is planned, having a heart to uniquely serve the Lord as He has equipped you. And be ready to fulfill the unique purposes for which he drew you to this congregation. This is a church of God's elect. And the elect will need to function for the glory of Christ. Beginning today and going forward in a season of transition that's not normal. 
Jennifer and I will travel to Louisville this evening to attend some strategic annual meetings that directly pertain to my role and responsibilities going forward. During these meetings, I will be introduced and appointed to the position, which will commence on November the 1st. We will return Thursday and remain with you for the rest of the month, preparing us all for the transition that is before us. During this time, I will continue to preach through the book of Titus. We will ordain Jeff into eldership next Sunday, and we will be available to discuss this decision, encourage one another through this change, and look to Christ as our provider of all things. I want to give a word to those this morning that are visiting or considering joining our church. If you are here today as a first-time visitor or you are desiring to explore membership with our church, I want to encourage you to keep your focus on the right objectives. This is a healthy church. This is a church in order. We find ourselves here under the blessing of Jesus Christ the authority of the Scriptures, and a healthy congregation that God has graciously assembled over the years. A church cannot be identified with one person or one pastor, and thankfully that is not the case here. So please, visitors, please focus on Christ and this congregation that is devoted to Him as you consider where you belong in your worship and service of God. Finally, church family, on behalf of my family, we thank you for your faithfulness to Christ and your devotion to this congregation. Whether you were here from day one or came during the last six years, we consider you a gift from the Lord to our congregation as well as to us. And we urge you not to discount your purpose for being here to worship Christ and serve Him through this transition and all the advancements that he will bring about in the coming days. We will be here immediately after this service and throughout the afternoon and will gladly respond to your questions and discuss this further. And as I stated earlier, we will be here through the rest of October to interact with you on a genuine and personal level. I thank you for listening to that. I praise God for the strength to get through it. The emotions have been heavy for a long time, and you don't see heavy emotions now because we're about emoted out in some ways. But this is done with a heavy heart and a joyful heart. It is a strange mix. And please know that we love you and have thank and thank you for being able to serve with you. For these six years. And we will have more to talk about. In the days to come. Colton. Um, we've just received some. Tough news. 